0: This is Michael Cox for the InCommon podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Victoria Bukowski, a PhD student in the Department of Politics at York University in Toronto, Canada, and a consultant for Suslop Incorporated. I met Victoria when she visited Dartmouth College on a Fulbright scholarship several years ago. Our conversation focused on the central topic of Victoria's dissertation, this being what is known as the duty to consult which is an obligation that the federal and provincial governments of Canada have to consult with indigenous groups about the potential consequences of government-supported projects, such as natural resource development. Victoria's primary question is about the effects that consultation processes have on the uncertainties that each of the groups involved in the process face. And Victoria talked about the historic dominance of a Eurocentric, and maybe we can add here bureaucratic, view of uncertainty in these contexts which might emphasize establishing certainty around natural resource revenues for the government and other proponents of development, for example. So I think part of the question here is, uncertainty for whom? We also talked about Victoria's role as a consultant for Suslop Incorporated. In this role, Victoria has conducted a wide range of activities related to early childhood education, as well as housing and transportation challenges for indigenous peoples in Canada. Finally, we talked about how Victoria navigates her dual role as an academic and a practitioner. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Victoria Bukowski. Can you talk to me a bit about what led you to pursue a PhD in the first place? If I have it right, you're in the Department of Politics at York University, which is in the Toronto area
1: kind of a funny story because I I initially wanted to go to law school. So out of my undergraduate degree, I wanted to become a lawyer. But I felt that I wasn't in the best position to apply to law school just yet, just because I felt that I didn't have enough knowledge and understanding of the areas of law that I was most interested in. Uh, At the time, namely, it was constitutional law. And um, to be honest, my first and second year of undergrad grades weren't the strongest. So I thought, okay, if I can do a master's degree, I can, you know, make my application maybe look a little more appealing and I can also develop my skills and my knowledge as I would like to. Uh, so I pursued a master's degree and then I did that at York um, with the same supervisor that I have now, uh, Gabrielle Slowey, and in, in the Department of Politics as well. And so I pursued that degree. And when I was trying to put together a thesis or come up with something for a thesis, I started the writing process. And basically, uh, my supervisor said, uh, This seems like it should be more of a PhD or doctoral dissertation. Um, It's like a little too big to be just a master's thesis. And so uh, she encouraged me to switch it up a bit uh, to pick up some more courses for the master's program and to switch my master's thesis to a major research paper instead um and then it was just a quick turnaround from there so just to finish that degree and then apply for the PhD program and then start there and of course I i mean I, I went in with the intentions of like I want to go to law school <laughs> um but I don't know what changed I just thought I guess it was kind of strange I just thought to myself well yeah sure why not like I'll try a PhD program like I was hesitant and I had many questions but it wasn't like anything ever thought of before and I think um, my supervisor also seemed to think that I had these a lot of different ideas, and that you know maybe I'd fit into consulting more than you know law practice. And um, I think it just that's just how it happened. It was never my intention. I never really wanted to start a PhD or you know become a professor per se or any of that. It just kind of fell into place. So
0: yeah, I think that's actually a lot more common than a lot of people realize um mm-hmm. i think after the fact people often impose these narratives on maybe even on ourselves but on other people thinking oh they must have like had a plan from the beginning from when they were five they thought i'm gonna be this and that and now <laughs> i just need to do that and i mean for many people a lot of the time like life is not like that mm-hmm. and, and mine was more much more like that it was like well this is like a reasonable next step to take let's see how it goes and kind of put one foot fr- yeah. in front of the other Has like been very much my experience as well
1: even when I was completing the PhD program uh, we had to do coursework in the first two years. And uh, one of the courses I took was at a law, at the law school at York. And uh, I don't know, it's funny because I took that course and I thought to myself, "Eh, I'm kind of glad I didn't (laughs) go to law school because it's very, um, in some ways restrictive because of how you have to read case law and apply it. And it, it doesn't have the creative elements. I, I, that maybe the PhD program does, at least from my perspective. So uh, I'm kind of glad with the, the choice I made.
0: Yeah, that, that's interesting. I don't want to bad mouth law school. But I will say most people I know who've went, who went to law school didn't don't speak glowingly of their experience. <laughs> I mean, and including people who like finished and now are lawyers. And they'll say sometimes things like, well, it was fine. It doesn't have a lot to do with what I do now. Yeah. Yeah. And the creativity bit's really interesting. I think that is, for actually a lot of people, like what is appealing about getting a PhD and being in academia is this combination of of being analytical and intellectual, but also feeling very creative and having some agency in the thoughts you have and the directions you take yourself for sure.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So um can you uh say a bit more about your dissertation work before I start recording? You promised to talk to me for many hours about this. So <laughs> um maybe well, at least one
1: yeah uh so okay uh basically my doctoral research focuses on the duty to consult and the duty to consult is a constitutional legal obligation that the crown has um essentially to consult indigenous peoples on any activities uh, that they plan to undertake or any actions that they take um, that may adversely affect affect or impact aboriginal treaty rights so this constitutional legal doctrine essentially emerged through case law um however it's founded to exist in section 351 of the Canadian Constitution Act which recognizes and affirms uh the existence of aboriginal and treaty rights. And basically I don't I think how I came across the duty to consult was actually in my undergraduate degree. And so I'll I'll talk a little bit more specifically about what I'm researching but just kind of taking a step back um I was in a Canadian politics course focused on Western politics or the Western Canada. And I I was researching Alberta because I think we had to choose a province and, and basically research the politics of that, write an essay or whatever. Uh, so I started with Alberta because Alberta's always interested in me given the expansiveness of the oil sands and the oil and gas industry there. And uh, so I, I came across a duty to consult and I thought, okay, this is interesting never heard of it because, I mean, you know, even prior to my master's degree, I, I hardly knew anything about Aboriginal treaty rights, um, or anything with Indigenous Canada. Uh, the educational system here doesn't really teach us enough about that. So I wanted to explore that more because it seems like really political, uh, you know, having to consult Indigenous nations about oil and gas development and the impacts it might have to their rights and interests. And uh, I was a, essentially told, no, this isn't political. So focus on campaigns, elections, and whatever. <laughs> uh, I, I guess maybe, yeah, I I don't know if, if things would be different now, or if it's just, it was just the nature of the course. But uh, I kind of left it as is and wrote about premiers, I guess. <laughs> uh, so then, you know, once I pursued the master's degree, I'm like, okay, let me expand on this further. And then, like, as I've already mentioned, the master's degree essentially Led into the PhD. So my actual doctoral dissertation builds upon my master's research, which um, compared consultation in Alberta versus New Brunswick with a specific focus on oil and gas development. So I was actually looking at, you know, what does consultation look like in Alberta around oil sands versus what does consultation in New Brunswick look like around fracking or proposed fracking um, projects. And it is like comparing apples to oranges because they're very, the provinces are very different in many ways and their policies are different and they have different uh, treaty relationships with the Indigenous nations in each respective jurisdiction or province. Um, But I think, you know, I was also encouraged by my supervisor to do a comparative study and not to just focus on Alberta because she thought it would make for a more compelling argument. And I guess the idea was, you know, in Alberta, you have consultation policy, and I should also note that um, consultation looks different in every province or in territory in Canada, because there's not a uniform way to approach it. Basically, there's just this legal obligation um, that the Crown has to fulfill, whether it's the federal crown or the crown and the right of the provinces. And so they, they have the liberty to create their own consultation policies and guidelines, etc. So that way they can meet this duty to consult. So when you look at Alberta's, it has a, um, a fairly comprehensive and lengthy consultation policy. It outlines basically the rules, the expectations. Uh, it also has uh, guidelines for proponents, things like that. If you look at New Brunswick, the situation's a bit different. The policy is very vague, um, doesn't provide a lot of guidance or detail. And what, what can happen is like when there's not enough guidance provided, you know, um, the province or the provincial government or proponents, just kind of make do with what they have, and do, sometimes they just make assumptions on what is best for consultation. But so, you know, when you're comparing the two and you're looking at different policies, you're like, okay, well, Alberta's looks fairly comprehensive, and you know that they've been overly successful with oil sands development. Uh, whereas in New, New Brunswick, the policy is vague, there is protests and riots around uh, fracking, and eventually a moratorium was placed on fracking in the province. You know, seeing how kind of consultation has played out. Um, and then just showing or demonstrating how, when you have a weaker policy or an ina- inadequate consultation, it can really jeopardize uh, natural resource development. And now, of course, you can't blame consultation policy for everything that happened in New Brunswick, and you can't say consultation policy in the process in Alberta is the reason why the oil sands are so successful. There's impact benefit agreements and all these other things that predated, you know, uh, the emergence of consultation policy and this idea that you do consult. Uh, so yeah, I guess I was I was encouraged to compare those provinces, but um, now moving more into the doctoral stage in my in my research, I really narrowed down my focus to just Alberta because just Alberta can tell us a lot about consultation. And and also just because like with COVID, things changed a lot. Like I was supposed to be doing interviews and engaging with people. And um, that kind of made it nearly impossible, especially working with indigenous nations. Like the last thing I would do is approach them, um, you know, with interview, like questions and interviews for my own benefit, essentially. Like, and the other thing is to the ethics around it. Um, you know, if we're to work with Indigenous um, nations or peoples for doctoral research at York University, there's this expectation that we um, commit our time to the community, volunteer, you know, build those relationships, and you can't do that over Zoom. And they, they, these communities, many of them have had to deal with, um, you know, the issues that have emerged from COVID that um, many non-indigenous, non-Indigenous peoples and communities didn't really necessarily have to deal with. So, Anyways, I focused on Alberta. And because of COVID and not being able to do interviews and not being able to see how things have kind of panned out on the ground, um I've I've really made it more about this concept of certainty, you know, and asking myself does consultation help establish certainty around resource development or facilitate it? And and then also just like trying to define what certainty is and and, and, and just creating these like indicators that can be used to measure it. And um, yeah, I guess, you know, so what I want to know is essentially, does Alberta's consultation policy establish greater certainty around natural resource development or not? And and who is certainty established for? And so I do engage a lot with um, literature on the duty consult and treaty making and resource governance and uh you know what i do is i just try to find these different indicators that i can use to measure things and to see like well what does the policy establish like or what is established in theory what is established on the ground how are first nations reacting to the policy um things like that so i mean i'm kind of gone all over the map (laughs) with what my dissertation is about but please feel free to ask questions for clarification
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, there's a lot there. Um, So yeah, I do have a couple of questions I'll have to ask you. One of the things I was thinking about when you were talking is what, well, two questions. One, how much does this duty to consult relate to this discourse about participation, which I don't think I heard you use the word participation, but it sounds very much like it's related to the discourse in my field about the need for participatory processes that engage with Um, folks who are going to be impacted by a policy saying that they need to be, you know, they need to have a voice in the policies that affect them. That was kind Mm -hmm. of a lens I was applying to this as you were talking. So I guess the question, the first question is how accurate is that lens? This is very much about participation and the value that it brings to policy processes.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the key criticisms that First Nations our Indigenous nations often have about these consultation policies. And especially in Alberta, I, I focus on Treaty 8 First Nations. Um, but, you know, many of them say, like, they're not even consulted in the creation of these policies. And uh, I think a key thing for them is, like, you know, these policies directly apply to them, will impact them, and yet they feel like they have no voice or say. And uh, other there's other sources, too, even from uh, government officials that suggest that um, You know, they ask for what First Nations want, but then they go turn around and just write whatever suits their needs, I guess you could right. say. Um, and, and I think the reason why the, the term participation isn't used so much is because I think it takes away from the meaning of the duty to consult and consultation, because this is a, you know, a constitutional legal obligation. If we just say engagement or participation, it might not hold as much weight or value. So hmm. I think a lot of times when we're talking about, you know, the need to be able to participate, to have a voice, to, to engage and to engage meaningfully. um, I think a lot of the times it just goes back to consultation specifically, because when you're talking about consultation within this context, you know, you're talking about the duty to consult most of the time.
0: Okay. So in this context, this duty to consult can have, has an important weight, um yeah it helps deal uh, with this yeah go ahead
1: no yeah it's just it's very um it's become extremely important a lot of decision making processes it changes the way of how people do business even in my line of work we you know we, we i work for first a first nation community but the projects that we work on are funded by the government of ontario so Meeting consultation obligations and ensuring that us, or our teams, you know, as the proponents are supporting the proponents, which is the First Nation community that we work for, um, they need to ensure that this obligation is met and they need to ensure that, like, th- there's limited room for error or for gaps. Because a lot of times if things go wrong, it doesn't take much for um, there to be a lawsuit or a legal challenge against the Crown, usually.
0: Okay. Yeah, I mean, one of the main challenges with, and you kind of mentioned this, that there can be, you mentioned that some of these provinces have very well written consultation policies, but of course, and this is a similar, this is a criticism that's been leveled at like participatory governance as well, is that it's easy to have something that on paper is participatory, or I guess we would say in this context, consultatory, but the spirit of the law is is not actually implemented. So you can have many people show up to a meeting, but if only certain voices are heard at that meeting, but you, you know, your measure of participation is, well, 45 people from a local community showed up to a meeting, but we didn't really let them say much at that meeting, right? That's not like participatory in quotes. And that's been like the big criticism of and trying to have a more engaged uh, governance strategy. And so I feel like I'm hearing that from you as well as Mm -hmm. being a challenge here.
1: Yeah, I mean, because you have to remember that you you have the law, then you have policy. And then like, even below that or beneath that are the guidelines of the in this case, consultation guidelines. So there's this hierarchy in terms of like, their importance and their value. And like, once you get to the, the guidelines, for example, the guidelines actually um, will provide a lot of guidance on what roles and responsibilities are, but because it's lower on that hierarchy, it, it seems to hold less value and there might be more wiggle room to avoid certain things or obligations. Um, and then, you know, I think too sometimes policies and guidelines are, and just like the, the processes established around consultation can be made vague on purpose or, you know, um, like not implemented in the ways that they should be because at the end of the day, it does cost a lot of money and times and resources for a First Nation, for example, to go to court to sue the Crown. And, you know, at the same time, Canadian governments will spend millions of dollars in court to fight those challenges as well. So it's like a lot of the issues have to get ironed out in court. But as we see case log develop more around consultation there, the courts have been Demanding a little more from Canadian governments or the Crown to say like, no, you have to actually do this or you have to accommodate. Um, But at the same time, it just it depends on jurisdiction as well. If you look at the case law in Alberta, for example, um, it doesn't seem that uh, Indigenous nations are making much headway in terms of, you know, having their Aboriginal Mm -hmm. treaty rights protected and getting the consultation that they would like to see. Uh, So there's that as well.
0: And Victoria, I'm realizing that I need to ask a clarifying question because you're, you're saying the word the crown a lot. And in my head, I was thinking, well, that means yeah. kind of the Canadian government, but that's not exactly right. Can you, can well, it, how right is that? Can you say a bit more about what we actually mean when we say that?
1: Yeah, so the crown basically, the crown rests with uh, the federal government, but also the provincial government. So you have the crown and the right of Alberta, you have the crown and the right of Manitoba, you have the 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 crown and the right of the federal government or the Canadian government. So um, that that's just basically the result of like federalism and just how the constitution and the, the division of powers work in Canada. So there's actually like the, the crown is not just the Canadian government as a whole or the government of Canada, I should say it is, it, it there is the crown and the right of Alberta. So the, there's like a crown for each province um, as well as for the federal government.
0: Okay. And so my next question, based on what you were saying, is it relates to a bit of your mentioning this idea of uncertainty, and you said kind of certainty for whom? And because con- you used the word success early on in describing different um, consultation policies, and you said some some places are having more success than others. You mentioned yeah. um, natural resource development. And I know that natural resource development in lots of these places has been very controversial. So Mm -hmm. how well can we pin down what it means for one of these to be successful when, as you said, we also have to ask, like, successful for whom? Are there kind of win-win outcomes here? Or is this really kind of an inescapably political process that has winners and losers? How do you think about that?
1: Yeah, so I think, and actually, I can't remember the professor that I was talking to at Dartmouth he was also there on a Fulbright scholarship um but he was we were talking about this and he he was saying that the best outcome sometime is lose 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 um everyone gives up a little bit of something to gain something and and I think I could see that playing out when it comes to consultation over natural resource development projects um you know like. When you think typically when you think, think of certainty, and particularly when it comes to natural resource development, there's, there's a very Eurocentric way of defining it and, and the expectations around it. You think of like legal, political, and economic certainty, you think about um, being successful with like these economic imperatives. When it comes to natural resource development, maybe you think about having projects approved, development um, to move forward, so that way the Crown or Canadian government in question, um, as well as proponents can be successful, can generate revenues, profits, royalties, whatever. Um, And so when I'm trying to like redefine certainty and to give it a different meaning and to look at how, you know, more than just settler society can benefit I'm thinking about it in terms of like different forms of certainty. So, you know, I mentioned there's legal, political and economic certainty. This is a more of a Western conception, but there's also um, subjective certainty, which might um, bring more value and have more meaning for Indigenous peoples in Canada because it relates to, say, for example, reconciliation, uh, cultural preservation, um, but even you know, taking a step further, like when I try to define certainty and try to establish all these different indicators for certainty, um, I try to think of different ways in which, you know, if I'm thinking about, like, say, for example, economic certainty, economic certainty for crown and proponents would mean, like having access to lands and resources for development and, you know, generating revenues and profits off of that. Um, But on the flip side of that for Indigenous peoples, like that might mean, getting some economic benefits out of development, having economic opportunities, and being able to use those resources to further advance their interests, their community development, etc. So, um, I mean, you know, when I'm looking at all these different forms of certainty and trying to figure out what it really means and who's it is established for, I'm always looking, okay, what does it look like for the crown proponents? What does it look like or what does it mean for Indigenous peoples? Um, and then, of course, I try to incorporate Indigenous perspectives wherever I can. But at the same time, it's, it's a little tricky because the concept of certainty has been, uh, has typically carried negative connotations with it. Because, as I mentioned, it's mostly defined in Eurocentric ways, but also because it's closely associated with treaty making and the idea of the Crown securing land for exploitation, essentially. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that helps answer your question a bit. I, I kind of ramble on because I'm, you know, I'm still trying to finalize all of this. Well, you're and in the middle is-
0: of it. I know what it I know what it feels like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you clarify what is the um, yeah, I understand. And this is the same thing in the United States that the treaty making is one of the most uh, controversial aspects of the history between the federal government and Native Americans because Mm -hmm. of the unfairness of the treaties and because of the way in which the treaties were not honored by the federal government. So again, I'm imposing to some extent that experience onto what I'm hearing you say, but you said that there's a relationship between treaty making and certainty that's problematic. I didn't follow that part. Could you say a bit more?
1: Yeah. So like, I guess what I'm saying is this idea of certainty. So Canadian governments might say like, oh, we want to establish greater certainty. I mean, although they don't, always define what they mean by that. But, you know, if you just look at the literature and the discourse around treaty making, and even I think today, if you Google, you know, treaty making in like uh, British Columbia, for example, this concept of certainty is always coming up. And I think, you know, maybe modern is different for modern treaty making, because I would not say that playing field is equal or level and you know but it is a bit different than how it was with the historic and numbered treaties where they're being negotiated with communities or nations um, who didn't speak the language who didn't have lawyers um, all those sorts of things so um, I think like now the term still being applied, it still carries negative connotations, because like I said, it's kind of assumed that certainty means just certainty for the government, certainty that lands and resources are going to be secure, certainty that they're, you know, being given up to the crown so they can do whatever they want. Um, And so I think that's, you know, but I also think the concept and the term is changing a bit, um, maybe through modern treaty making, maybe elsewhere. And like I said, you know, this research has become very um, like almost abstract and theoretical in a way that I'm like I really want to understand what this term means or how it can be applied like you know we have even in, in um, some of the duty consult literature or other literature I read I'm like it, the term gets used often but no one ever explains what it means or de- really defines it and then the same thing even in Alberta's consultation policy at least the first or initial version it has it says you know something to about creating a practical consultation process that establishes greater certainty okay what does that mean and what does it mean for who exactly you know i have an idea what it means when it comes from government <laughs> but you know i'm trying to also show that at least through my research that it doesn't have to mean this one thing and you know it should be expanded to mean different things to different people including indigenous nations and um I guess just also identifying, you know, the shortcomings of just always assuming it means, you know, securing land and resources for, um, to just to generate revenues for crown or proponents or whoever.
0: Okay. Could you talk a bit about, so you mentioned Victoria that you needed to pivot because of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. what you were focusing on, how well do you feel like that's gone for you? Are there ways in which you feel like that's been successful or ways in which you still feel it's challenging and, And why do you think that is? Because I think we're all kind of looking to share experiences about this because we're all having challenges. So I'm just curious if you're willing to share uh, some aspects of yours that feel particularly salient beyond what you've already mentioned to me about the obvious need to pivot away from a deeper engagement.
1: Yeah, I think, well, I think one of the benefits of it has been, I you know, I've really taken a deep dive and uh, into all sorts of literature and different fields, trying to figure out or define this concept of certainty and trying to relate it to consultation and natural resource development. I don't think I would have done everything that I've done to date if I was able to go and have interviews. In fact, I think if I were to go do interviews and to talk with people, I think the nature of this study would have changed a lot. So on the plus side I think it's really stayed true to you know what I've really been initially interested in Um, and I think but the key challenge is that it has been very difficult to find um, information that I'm looking for so especially when it comes to like I mentioned the this concept of certainty carries these negative connotations with it and I think you know there's a key reason why it is not commonly used by indigenous peoples or nations Um, when they're talking about natural resource development or when they're talking about their expectations around consultation. So in that regard, there's like a lack of Indigenous perspective on what it means. And, but of course I have been able to, you know, uh, establish these indicators to help me measure it, to help me explain what certainty is. And then I take and draw upon um, commentary or, you know, what what has been posted or said on, Uh, First Nations websites or what they've said in court or things like that. So the the perspectives that they have are still there, but they might not necessarily directly speak to this concept of certainty itself. Um, So I think that has been very challenging. And also, you know, there are some key pieces of of information I haven't been able to access until just very recently, because it's just like, I think, like I explained to my supervisor, I'm like, oh, now that I've seen these sources of information or these books or articles starting to talk about what I'm talking about more like I feel more confident in what I'm doing um
0: it's validating but like
1: yeah but for for a long time I'm like am I going crazy like (laughs) I'm just sitting in my office writing about Alberta
0: (laughs) just spinning your neurons around yeah totally
1: yeah (laughs) so yeah it's been very tough but um I think I've managed and at at the end of the day, I don't think it's going to be perfect. um, But I do think I'm contributing in some way, like I said. Um, Well, I don't know if I actually said this, but the duty consult literature, like it it really focuses on the evolution of the duty consult. It focuses and its emergence as well. It focuses on, you know, does it establish reconciliation or help advance reconciliation or not? And then there's a little there's a few pieces uh, on like certainty, like what does it do for legal certainty or like certainty in the context of natural resource development, but it's definitely understudied, uh, not well-defined. So I'm, I'm at least confident that I'm somewhat filling a gap or helping move the, that area of study forward, but um, it has been extremely difficult uh, to get this done. And yeah, I guess that's all.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Okay, can we talk about your consulting work that you've been engaged in for a little while now? You'll first have yeah. to help me uh, pronounce the name of it correctly. Is well, I won't even try. Is it what? How do you pronounce it?
1: <laughs> I mean, people pronounce it differently, but I've been working there long enough to confidently say that it's suslop. So the idea is, I think the name was taken from sustainable development, so combining the two words. Um, however the The idea of our behind our work isn't necessarily to facilitate sustainable development per se, but rather sustainable outcomes. So sustainable outcomes for our clients and uh, to help them with their visions of sustainability, I guess you could say.
0: And what are the main activities that you all engage in to accomplish that goal?
1: Yeah. So, um, well, now, like my main activities, or just like what we do generally.
0: Good question. Uh, I'm interested in both. Yeah. What do you, so? Let's start with what you do, and then we can ask about how that contributes to what the the large organization is doing.
1: Sure. Uh, so I do a lot of different tasks, and I think it, part of the reason for that is we're a very small firm. We're growing, but I think it, we have six people, or maybe just a bit more than that. But just oh, a year ago, it was like three people or two people. Uh, so. I have done a lot of research and writing. Um, I do research and writing for different Indigenous organizations and nations. And the the nature of the the research varies. So um, I've done some work on early learning, childhood education and subsidy programs for um, Indigenous peoples across Canada. I've also done some research on um, the First Nations housing sector. And just trying to help identify gaps within the housing sector, whether it's like, you know, the the housing crises that nations face, like is it the result of a lack of labor? Is it the result of um, inadequate housing management or not having the housing managers needed to develop, um, to manage housing on reserve, for example? Uh, I've done research on like impact benefit agreements on um, mining projects for for communities interested in getting involved in those spaces. So I would say that it uh, a lot of research and writing and I think people would be some people would be surprised by that but you know oftentimes it feels like I've never left the graduate you know the doc uh, the doctoral program or graduate studies when I'm doing my actual work as a consultant. I also do a lot of proposal writing. And the proposals are uh, much larger and sometimes more complicated than the ones we would do in academia. I guess for grants, and I help with consultation and engagement activities. So, um, as I've mentioned, I, I do work for a First Nation who is um, they are leading uh, some major infrastructure projects, namely roads projects in northern Ontario, and so. Um, consultation and engagement activities are required to, you know, to consult with neighboring Indigenous nations, uh, with key stakeholders, so assisting with that by helping maintain records of consultation, Um, so like basically logging the different activities that we do to ensure or demonstrate that we are engaging with these different groups of people, um, as well as helping facilitate public information centers or community meetings, where we share information about the projects, answer questions, gather feedback, um, you know, questions and concerns. And then another thing that I do, I, I do so much that I can hardly remember. Oh, I guess the main thing I've been working on lately is I'm also assisting a First Nation with um, an indigenous knowledge study that they're working on. This also relates to those road projects that I was referring to. And basically um, this is mapping out Um, areas of interest or cultural significance um, you know for that particular community and anything that holds value or might be related to uh, their aboriginal and treaty rights and the idea of that is to essentially document all these different spaces and and areas and interests of value and to um, and to preserve it and digitize it so that way you know when development takes place, whether it's, you know, the roads or mining or whatever else that takes place within that traditional territory of the community, um, you know, it can be as a a guideline saying, okay, maybe don't do that here, because this is a sensitive area, uh, whether it's for cultural reasons, or maybe, you know, another example would be, um, like, like caribou calving areas, or, Somewhere where there's endangered species, where they reproduce, and and so I'm helping them with that. Um, that consists of like interviews and you can, using ArcGIS to um, basically plot out those different areas and to um, maintain that data record. And that also gets used or will help support environmental and impact assessment processes that are required by government as well. So,
0: wow, that's and then, that's yeah. quite a lot.
1: and that's not even it but i think those are the main things
0: (laughs) okay so who is funding this and i guess also who is applying do you for example you're saying you're working for his first nation does that mean that you co-applied with that first nation for grants and who are you applying to
1: yeah so okay it, it varies um so in some situations, we, we will see a request for proposal online, whether it's on some Indigenous organization's website or elsewhere, or someone passes it along to us. And so um, I, I don't always know where the money's coming from, but usually the money or funding that these organizations have come from the federal government. So federal government gives this organization X amount of dollars so that they can carry out their activities. Um, And then they, they allocated it based on, you know, their interests and needs or what they would like to get done Um, in terms of the, yeah, in terms of the community I work for um, same thing. So they, they get their own funding uh, from the federal government, but also the provincial governments involved. And so, some of the the larger infrastructure projects I work on, the, the government of Ontario is actually funding it, but the community is leading it. So uh, the community is technically the proponent of the project, uh, but the money is coming from Ontario. And, and how that happened, how that relationship started, I don't know. Um, that's something <laughs> that my boss would know, and he's been involved in since like 2016. So I don't know if he approached the community. I don't know if, if someone brought it up to him, but uh, it, it depends. So sometimes he will reach out to you. Um, sometimes you have to apply Sometimes the money comes from the provincial government. Sometimes it comes from federal. And also, too, if you're working, if you're trying to bid on something that a municipality is doing, usually their money comes from the provincial government. So um, a lot of government funding, I would say.
0: Okay, fair enough. And so doing all this work, Victoria, how does it feel to you? To I mean, you have kind of these two identities. One is a consultant, one is a PhD student. How does that feel? How do you balance that? I mean, it sounds like there could be some complementarities. Yeah,
1: it's I mean, I think, well, just in terms of timing, it can be extremely challenging, balancing work and also um, doctoral studies. And also because it's um, my, my job isn't easy per se. I'm not just sitting in meetings and listening. I mean, sometimes I am like I I do attend a lot of meetings. I do client facing activities, but there is a lot of research and writing and heavy thinking involved. So sometimes I can barely, you know, differentiate the two. (laughs) I do find too, though, as I get more uh, involved or ahead in my career as a consultant, it does become more client facing and you know, there's a lot more travel for work, there's a lot more meetings. Um, and I don't necessarily always love all the meetings or <laughs> you know, you know, zoom call after zoom call. <laughs> but um yeah, I yeah, I don't know. I I kind of lost track of what the question was, to be honest. <laughs>
0: well, how are you balancing these different roles that you're currently having and the demands yeah. for each one? And um
1: and sometimes I don't balance them well, to be honest. Like it's uh it's sure. hard. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah 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 it's funny when you like you get asked a question like how do you do this I feel like there's pressure to say well here I'm doing I do it well all the time and here's how I do it it's like well sometimes yeah. it just doesn't happen right yeah. it's like
1: yeah
0: <laughs> yeah um are there aspects of the consultant role what are the aspects of it that that particularly appeal to you
1: I think the main thing for me is that I feel like my work is actually doing some good good. Like I'm able to apply my knowledge and my skills and to help somebody. Whereas, I mean, I guess maybe also, cause I'm, I'm still just finishing the PhD and I haven't really published anything, but like for me, I have these ideas. I write things like, even if it's like research papers or whatever, and then I just put it on a shelf somewhere where it collects dust. And that might be a, a me problem as well. Like I'm too afraid to share things. Um, but I guess just like when I'm doing this work, even if it's like a massive, like multi-year project, um, I just feel like I can see the actual benefits of what I'm doing. Or if I write a report for an organization, they're like, oh, wow, I didn't think of this. And this is really good. And yeah, we should do this. Or, you know, like I feel more satisfied. And I guess that's what I really enjoy about the work is like, I feel like it can actually almost see the benefits or the, you know, the positive outcomes that, that it might have for a particular community or organization. So I say that's the main thing that I, I really enjoy about consulting. Whereas when I'm in this academic setting, I feel like it's just me with my own thoughts, writing things that don't go anywhere or or get or you know um, get featured somewhere, and they just uh, collect dust on the shelf or the drawer. So
0: yeah, I will say I don't think that's a you problem. At least it's also a me <laughs> problem if it if that's the case. I mean. I, yeah i mean i think that makes a lot of sense victoria i think that's a lot i've struggled with that within academia feeling like okay i could publish like two four six eight more articles next year and what my life won't be that different Mm -hmm. whose whose life will be that different if there's you know so many more pdfs in the world for people to look at i think it is i think it's something that's actually appropriate to kind of struggle with particularly in our field, which is so I don't know if the word quite is applied, but like, there's so much potential for people in our field to wanting to be engaged w- with um, on the ground projects, etc. And I think there is, you know, the, the space that I found academia can contribute is to help us think carefully about how we are engaging. Yeah. Right. You you want to be thinking and doing at the same time and it's so so often easy to feel like you're just doing one. So the next to me obvious question is how do you see this moving forward? You finish your PhD. Uh do you want to keep do you want to be a consultant full time at that point? How are you currently kind of imagining your future in that regard?
1: Yeah, so I really I do really enjoy my work and I really Enjoy the people I work with, so I would like to to continue with what I'm doing and to continue to develop my um, knowledge and skills through, you know, actually applying them and and meeting different people and working on different projects. So, yeah, I definitely want to continue to be a consultant and and do that full time. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, there's other things and aspirations that I want to do. So, um, I do teach on the side. I, I lecture at Lakehead university. Um, I twice now I've taught, uh, government ethics, governance, and indigenous business. So if I can continue with that or even teach other courses on the side, I think that would be great. I do find it to be rewarding to, to teach. Like sometimes it's a little painful if I'm being honest, um, especially when, Students are emailing you silly questions, not silly questions, just silly things, and um, and I do find it can be a bit exhausting if you don't have a TA or assistant uh, when you have hundreds of students emailing you all at once when something is due. Uh, but at the same time, it can be really rewarding because you know at least from my experience, especially teaching students about Indigenous Canada or settler colonialism, like a lot of them don't have that foundational knowledge or background or understanding, so. Like, you know, by the end of the term, when they say, oh, I really learned something or, you know, um, I teach them how to write proposals, like something that I do every, like not every day, but like often, um, a lot of them don't seem to think or see the value in doing that or doing that exercise as opposed to a research paper. I'm like, but you know, I, I really appreciate at the end of the day when they're like, I hated this assignment, but I really learned something. And I think I can apply it in the real world or, in, you know, in, um, whatever future endeavors that they may have. So yeah, I'd like to continue to teach um, and find new new opportunities with teaching. Um, And then I guess also like in not anytime soon, but in the future, I would consider maybe pursuing a master's of business administration. So an MBA. Um, MBAs are quite expensive. (laughs) So (laughs) I have to be really certain that's what I want to do. In addition to having a PhD. Um, but it does, it does interest me because I did take some MBA courses at York and that's actually how I met my boss of who owns the firm that I work for. Um, and I just really enjoyed it and found it to be interesting and just want to have more of that, um, business sense and understanding because it helps a lot in the consulting world. There's, there's like areas I'm, I'm very good researcher and I understand a lot about law and policy, et cetera, but when it comes to the business side of things, that's not necessarily my strong suit. So that would be great to develop those skills. But like I said, costly. And also I think I need a break <laughs> from school because it's, I was going to say, entire-
0: <laughs> it sounds like you're going to stay busy. Yes. <laughs> that's a really great answer. I mean, I think there are all these different opportunities, but, but there's always like, it's, it's helpful to not kind of always be grass is greener because there's, you know, there's, you can swap your current problems with with new problems like you could say oh i'm a consultant i just i want to be an academic and it's like okay well you're gonna have to deal with 100 emails from students at 10 p.m or or i want to stop being an academic i want to be a consultant it's like well okay now you have six hours of zoom meetings every day right there's there's no kind of perfect path you kind of have to Find a way in some ways to be this is a kind of negative way to start to conclude the interview, but it's like finding a way to be happy with the like enjoy the problems that you have.
1: <laughs> What's nice about you know being a consultant and teaching and like doing all these other things is you get like you just get all these different experiences, you meet all these different people. Um, you know, and like even now, like my consulting work, I still I, like I love my job, it's great, but you know, when I want to kind of like just being my own little mind and write things like then I switch over to my PhD and, and work on that. And it's like, when I'm tired of that, I'm like, okay, now I'm going to go do something else that's related to this instead, like in for my job. And so I like having that flexibility. And um, I also, my boss, he, he actually, he teaches at a business school. He has his MBA he's completing his PhD or um, working through it. At least he's running the firm And like, he is just a wealth of knowledge. So, and I, and he just has so many networks, so many skills. And I think, I guess uh, if I I, I would aspire to be like him in a way, because it's just like, it's quite impressive of what he's able to accomplish. And, uh, and then also just like, you know, having that flexibility to be like, okay, you know, I'm going to put my teaching hat on now, I'm going to be the principal consultant right now, Uh, I'm going to write my PhD. So I just think it's a impressive and interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, Victoria, are there other um, topics you want to make sure we cover? Are there threads that we started and didn't finish that you want to return to?
1: No, I think that's everything. I uh, I did, let me just see if I had some, a few notes here, but I think we've covered everything. And I, I do apologize if I was a little all over the place with uh talking about my dissertation. Like I, my dissertation, to be honest, is almost I think it's 10 chapters long. So I'm really trying to uh, make my thoughts more concise and coherent.
0: (laughs) So, so, so I have thoughts about this because I'm finishing a book in the next two months and Mm -hmm. I've, you know, I've started to dread the question like, oh, what's your book about? Talk to me about it. Cause it's like, well, do you have half an hour? Cause I'd love to talk to you about these eight different thoughts I had about it yesterday and i think the <laughs> deeper the deeper you are into it i think the harder it is to kind of extract yourself and give someone else like a 15 second view and yeah. i think so i've come to two conclusions about this maybe one of them is self-serving the first one is yeah it's good to be able to give someone like a 30 second like synopsis because for most people in your life like that's how much time you're going to get of theirs but i think there should be space for kind of the the word vomit approach it's like well let me just talk to you yeah. we'll have a conversation about this and i don't i don't say word vomit pejoratively because that's also what i give it's like well do i have 30 seconds or can we have a conversation about this for like half an hour because if we can i'm just going to start talking to you because i also am really excited mm-hmm. about it so i think there's there needs yeah. to be space for both of those it can't just be that it can't be that you just like are able to tweet out a summary of your of your project
1: Yeah. And I also like in my defense as well, this has been ongoing since I'm looking at the degrees on my wall, I think since 2015, like this idea started in 2015. So it's been a a long process and, you know, going through all these different uh, resources and ideas and then just trying to wrangle them in and to really, you know, get to the point is I I still find it challenging, but I will get there.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries on our blog on our website, InCommonPodcast.org. The InCommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.